1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Homo Sapiens. I'm on a walk because I'm trying to be healthy. New Year, New Me, etc. This is an episode of Culture Club. I haven't saved this little bonus episode because I've got a book to talk about. The wonderful psychologist and author Julia Shaw has written a bi-bible uh, and it's a fascinating book about the history and culture of bisexuality and how, quite crucially, we overlook it. If you remember when Alan was doing the podcast with me, we used to talk about it a lot, uh, how overlooked the bi community are. Well, Look no further because Julia's written this book and it's great. Full of fascinating facts. Things you just didn't know. Like what, oh, the survey about what people Im- imagine in their mind when they think of a bi person compared to a lesbian or a gay man. It's very, very interesting. So that's today. That's today. It's a really lovely chat. Um, have you caught up with last week's episode with Juno, Dawson? Lovely messages. Thank you for everyone sending them in. Hello at com. Stay in touch with us. Um Yeah. That's it, really. This has been lovely. You've been lovely. And we haven't even started yet. Here's our chat with Julia. Would you mind just starting? Because, you know, most of the people we have on this podcast are hooligans, myself included. Would you mind just telling me a bit about your job title and what you do in your day-to-day life? Because it's fascinating.
3: So I am a criminal psychologist and I specialise in memories. So memories, in particular, things that never happened called false memories. And I do some work as an expert witness still. I definitely did more of that in the past. And yeah. I read about things like evil or, if you will, deconstructing it and trying mm. to challenge the dichotomous thinking that we often have around good versus evil, which in some ways I'm doing with sexuality in my latest book, <laughs> Straight Versus Gay. And I'm constantly the person who says, what about the nuance? Uh, the same with memory. Memories could be true. Or false but many or most are a combination of the two so lots of our memories are a bit false but also a bit true and so the question is sort of how do you pick that apart and what do you, what do, you do with that information
2: what made you write this book by i obviously i know there's personal experience in there but it in some ways is a departure while being deeply fascinating i love the book
3: i wanted to write about bisexuality because, well, yeah, I'm bi, as you might expect as someone who writes a book about bisexuality. But as a criminal psychologist, I guess as a a scientist, I have a tendency to look for research on stuff. And I found that it was not just difficult, but impossible to access research on bisexuality, even as someone who has a PhD in psychology. Like I, I didn't, I didn't know the words. I didn't know where to look. I've been part of the queer community for a while now. Mm-hmm. I've always identified as bi, like, this isn't new. I'm now 35. This is my whole life has been sort of in various ways in contact with the queer community, although not as much as maybe if I was um, not bi, and maybe if I was lesbian, I would be even more connected, but that's yeah. a whole conversation we can have as well. Mm-hmm. Um But I really wanted to read a book like this. And I felt that there wasn't really a comprehensive look at the literature, at the research, at the history, um, or as the book is called, The Science, History and Culture of Bisexuality. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to go find all this stuff, and it's going to be really, because I was finding it so difficult, it was going to be really hard, I may as well write about it and take people along the way with me, because I'm sure lots of people are asking themselves these questions.
2: Well, you might as well get paid. No, I know that. That's a joke. (laughs) But um, you sort of mention in the book, something that comes up a lot on this podcast, which is that concept of bi erasure. You know, and I'm aware this is a big question, but why do we skip over bisexuality?
3: Oh, man, there are many reasons. I think the most sort of concise one is that bisexuality introduces nuance and makes things feel a bit complicated, even though it doesn't actually make them more complicated, because it's just reality because <laughs> mm-hmm. lots of people aren't entirely straight or gay or or even entirely asexual and so adding that sort of flexibility into whom we might see as possible sexual partners or romantic partners and how we talk about identity labels. Um, we, we like boxes. Lots of us like boxes, even if we yeah. say we don't. And we like labels, partly because it's easier to find like what's your setting on, you know the social the, the whatever app you're using or whatever you're using to connect with people. Um, it's easier to use a label than to just say to sort of say, "Ah, whatever anything goes. Mm-hmm. um because that's usually not quite representative either, because you might be, let's say, 90% of the time attracted to men and 10% of the time attracted to women. So you're more likely to look for a man. But how do you communicate that effectively in the way that we talk about it now? And so bisexuality introduces that, what sounds like confusion, but is really just a representation of how many people's sexuality actually works.
2: Yeah, and there's this sort of, um, well, there's a really fascinating bit in the book where you illustrate it, where you talk about asking someone to imagine a gay man. I think it was gay man imagine a gay man in your head what image do you see imagine a lesbian in your head what image do you see and people could quite easily describe what they could see in their head and then you said describe a bisexual person and people couldn't really articulate that right and and i i've I think that's fascinating.
3: Although you'll have some listeners, I'm sure, who say, what do you mean? Of course, there's a bisexual visual language, which is cuffed jeans, uh, you know, sensible shoes, (laughs) a green couch and not being able to sit in chairs, which, (laughs) you know, all that internet meme language, which, you know, it it also helps build a sense of community if Mm. we... Make jokes like that. And Mm -hmm. of course, lots of these things apply to lots of people. It's a bit like horoscopes where a lot of the stuff applies to lots of people. And so people are like, oh, that is me. Yes. (laughs) I mean, of course, there's no one, you know, cookie cutter approach to bisexuality, much like there isn't, you know, you can't tell by looking at someone whether they're gay. But the question is, can we, when we want to be seen, can we be seen? And what are the tools we use to do that? And given that, I mean, even with this book, I learned that most people don't know what the bi flag is. So even the actual bisexual Mm -hmm. flag. If you're like, oh, well, I'll I'll pin that to myself. That's Mm. not going to get you very far because most people don't know what that is either. And so it's trying to make yourself seen without having to say it all the time. And for bisexuality compared to other sexualities, that's more limited. Although I think it is emerging even since I've written this
2: book. Really? But also what I'm wondering is if we you know, the world is a complicated place. So we speak in reductive labels, don't we? We all do it. And I'm not talking about sexuality, I'm just talking about many things. You know, we, in order to break it down into bite-sized chunks, we reduce things into labels. And as a result, I think we do absorb from culture quite strong labels about gay men or lesbian women, but we don't quite so much about bisexuality and i'm wondering if that is because we sort of see it incorrectly but i'm i'm trying to sort of get to the bottom of the perception rather than the truth that it's something that people check in and out of and therefore is something they they can choose to leave behind in moments that it suits them or pick up in moments that it suits them. Like that is an incorrect perception, but I was just interested that people had the image in their head, but not with bisexuality.
3: Yeah. And that visibility chapter where I also talk about the representation in film, for example, on TV and Mm -hmm. how there as well, you run into issues with how do you represent the bisexual character, especially because there's been a long history of people being completely unwilling to let any character say that they're bisexual even when they are Mm. and so people don't come out in the same way if they come out they come out in these vague terms like i like the wine not the label which is cute but just say Mm. the word it's not a dirty word Mm. and so there's you're left with this ambiguity and and people tiptoeing around the term which makes it sound like oh well there's something wrong with it then. And Mm. either there's something wrong with it because as you alluded to, it's a stepping stone. So it's sort of, you're on, it's on the path to gay town or Mm. it's on, you know, or you experiment, especially if you're a woman, it's this idea that maybe there's a performative phase in your life where you're really doing it for the boys, maybe during university, but you're actually straight. You're sort of like a tourist in queer spaces. And, And those are really toxic misconceptions. I mean, in uh, Sex and the City ages ago, it was, you know, bisexuality was invented to to sell Smirnoff Ice. That was the, as an advertising strategy was, it was a joke, but it's not a joke when it's said so many times that people start to believe it and they have no counter narrative, right?
2: Yes. And so
3: me as little Julia, you know, I'm like seven or whatever, watching this going, oh, Mm. I guess, I guess that's what people think about bisexuality. And Mm. I've got no positive representation and the yes. closest we get is like villanelle there's a whole genre of like bisexual villains because we're allowed to be duplicitous and manipulative
2: <laughs> yes tell me a bit about that idea of in pop culture it's sort of um sexy murderers by bi- bisexual people are sexy murderers
3: yes the sexy murderers especially by by women uh, but mm-hmm. by men as well by men are more likely to be closeted gay men that's mm-hmm. the narrative there yes. um Or the bridges. And so this is where it also it can veer into the narratives that we see in politics, and we see in other aspects. And so in some of the other chapters, as you know, I dig into the the political history and the tensions within the queer community around bisexual people, especially in the fight for equal marriage, especially in the fight for queer rights, basically, because outsiders, more so than insiders, were seeing bisexuality as more perverted than other kinds Mm. And I went back to university and did a master's in queer history as part of the research for this book. And as part of that, I investigated a magazine that was published by the bisexual community for the bisexual community in San Francisco in the 1990s. And it's called Anything That Moves. Right. And, but that's, it's pushing back against that idea that, well, bisexuals will have sex with anything that moves Mm. there, you know, they have, they have no preferences. And so they're basically all sluts. And, Mm. and then that gets Pushed further into the perversion field when you talk about things like AIDS vectors or bridges. And so for bi men, there's that stigmatizing of, well, you're the dirty link between the queer world and the straight world. And the whole time you're being duplicitous, you're lying to us all. And now to come back to the the villains. um, And that is the same rhetoric with the portrayal of a lot of bisexual people on screen is they're the blood sucking vampires they're mm. the ones who manipulate your sexuality and their sexuality to get what they want they're the ones who live quite literally underground sometimes mm. they're the villainelles of the world who mm-hmm. you, you know who who will kill lots of people and not think it twice about it so it all sort of ties together and unfortunately it seeps way beyond film so in some ways film is often a, a mirror of what's happening outside and the fact that these villains are existing in those spaces is possibly because society already sees them that way
2: yeah and carrying on the film thread and then i want to get on to the bridges idea because it just is so interesting that one of the things is about Brokeback mountain is r- routinely discussed as being a gay cowboy film but i can't remember who the quote was it says people say they're gay cowboys but actually they're bisexual shepherds <laughs> yeah (laughs) because actually they do i mean i I cannot remember specifics but definitely i would say as a gay man i totally fell into that terrible trap of being like yeah they're gay men they're like me but actually they are married and they have children and you know and i know there's a struggle but tell me more about that it's fascinating
3: so the erasure of bisexuality from how we talk about characters is i mean it's prevalent on screen. So the fact that the, the characters themselves or the characters in their circumference won't talk about the fact that someone is bi or say mm-hmm. the word is one thing. Then there's the thing which is mislabeling, which is also a thing that um, in my master's in queer history, I kept stumbling over is that people, I think queer people are so hungry for a link to our past because there's been so much obfuscation and erasure. There's been so so much hidden from view and so much taken from us mm-hmm. and so much criminalized and so much secrecy over so many years that we're just hungry for stories. We're like, yes, but where's the representation? But what that can lead to is that then if you see any hint of queerness, you assume, ah, well, that person is then, that's their real identity. Their real identity is the queer piece that we have some evidence of. So the fact that a man is married and has multiple children but has a male lover, he's one of us. He's he's gay, mm-hmm. um, rather than considering or even just adding the qualifier or by because we don't know unless that person has said that explicitly. That the rest of it is because of what's called compulsory heterosexuality, which is that socially, especially historically, but still in many parts of the world, arguably all, um, there is this perception that you're going to go get married in a heterosexual looking dynamic. And that's part of being human. And you don't really get to opt out of that.
0: Mm. And so
3: there's, that and that's called compulsory heterosexuality, which is something we should destabilize. But if we take that into account, the problem is if we say, well, all of the other stuff then is because they had to be in that relationship. We're just erasing all the bisexuals because... Of course there are people who get married to one gender and are attracted to another and maybe also live in open dynamics for example like you're you're making a lot of assumptions by saying that person is a monosexual in a way that is gay or lesbian or favorable to whatever it is you're trying to research in history so we need to be careful not to get too excited and not and and so remember that if you do that systematically you systematically erase all bisexuals from history and that's also a disservice to bisexual people
2: yeah and on the topic of erasure, what is the, and please nobody get cross with me I, because I'm probably going to say something wrong here, but I speak to be educated. But what is the dialogue between bisexual people and pansexual people? Because I imagine that there is some overlap and, and therefore within it, uh, you, when you're talking about erasure, I wonder if that's the thing there too.
3: So when I use the word bisexual, I use it as an umbrella term to include pansexual, polysexual, plurisexual, omnisexual, fluid, sometimes unlabeled, anyone who says that they are attracted romantically and or sexually to multiple genders.
2: So So non-mono type thing, basically.
3: Yeah, plurisexual is sort of the mm. academic term for that. Mm. That's right. So monosexual versus plurisexual. If we want a new binary, we can use that one instead. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Do you know what we need? More binaries. More More, binaries. more black and white so we can exclude people.
3: <laughs> right. So in, in that case we'd have the we'd have asexual, plurisexual, and monosexual
2: Ah, okay. would be yes, the, that would really yes, be the trichotomy if
3: we were if we were yeah. being precise but anyway pansexual is is part of the the umbrella term for me i mm-hmm. actually brought in the pansexual colors into my cover design because i wanted to make sure that it feels like it's included because that is the next biggest in terms of the terms that people use to describe themselves yes. within that category queer obviously is sort of a catch-all at this point for many people mm-hmm. but um pan is probably the the next closest as for whether it means the same thing There's some debate around that. I think we often get um, caught up in sort of a battle of small nuances, which I don't know that I think they often detract from the conversation and can make it seem really exclusive. Mm -hmm. And so adding more words, yes, use whatever word you want, but don't judge people for theirs either mm. and there can be a bit of the like oh well bi is an old word and it's like well yes it is that's why it's wonderful because it's got a, a history that's 150 years old and uh and bisexual has always meant attraction to people of multiple genders and it is not transphobic ah. and so when you ask people to define what they mean when they say pan pansexual or bisexual research has found that people define themselves in the same way so it's like the I think there's there's a saying that I'm forgetting right now, but there's something like the the battle of small differences which we need to be a bit careful with so we don't fracture the community from within.
2: Interesting. And do you draw any differentiation for yourself between would you say you're bisexual or pansexual or do you not care? Or is there a d- distinction for you personally? Because, you know, it's all personal. It's all subjective.
3: Yeah, I like the word bi for me or bisexual because it has the longest history and is the most easily understood. So it's been used since almost as long as the terms heterosexual and homosexual have been around. We've had the term bisexual, which was meant to capture those who weren't heterosexual or homosexual, but were both, hence the term bi. So attracted uh-huh. to same and other genders, which now has uh, sort of evolved as we, the conversation around gender has changed, obviously, since the last 150 years. Mm. Um, and so now it's most widely different, uh, d- defined as attraction to people of multiple genders. And I think that captures, captures me. I also, I don't, I don't like so if we were to contrast that I don't like the origin of the word pansexual. Okay. So that's the other side. That doesn't have as nice a history. Go on, tell me. Well, the word pansexual was first used as a critique of Freud, like Sigmund Freud, mm-hmm. of his work because you know how Freud always talked about like people wanting to have sex with their parents and like the d- deep down inside everything's about sex. And so it was used as a critique of Freud's work because he made everything about sex. Oh. So it was pansexual. His theories were pansexual. And then what? it was adopted by the kink community, which is also, I mean, I, 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 obviously I don't mind where it's gone. I just don't like the trajectory compared to the other one. Mm-hmm. And then the kink community, it was adopted for a while in, I believe it was in the uh, 80s, where it was, I'm into everything. So it was more, I'm pansexual, as in I'm attracted, like I'm into all the kinks. Uh-huh. And then in the 90s was the first time it was used, possibly by mistake, by someone as an identity label. And so it's, it's gone through this transition where it has a very sort of, it's a bit more messy of a history, I think. And mm. um, I quite like the research history, which is where the buy comes from.
2: Well, also, listeners, we're, you know, we're talking about labels um and we're talking about the history of them, which is fascinating. But also, I want you to write in and say what label makes you feel soothed. Because I think that's what happens when you find a label. For me, you know, it's like, oh, that's me. Cool. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. able to move on in some ways. You know, don't say it to me again. I just, uh, it makes me feel good. And I wonder if people have what people's feelings on that are, you know, it's interesting. So I'd love to hear more from everybody listening as to where you sit. Now, let's talk a bit about the bridges. Because I thought that was such a fascinating piece of information that specificities around bisexuality and how bisexual people were they were called am i right in saying it was aids bridges Mm -hmm. because they were the people bringing aids to the straight community via from gay people yeah i mean shocking stuff
3: well and that was the stereotype as well that was what was used to discriminate against and um, do terrible things to bisexual men in particular. Uh, but the the Bridges stuff is, is interesting because <laughs> basically it's bi specific, as you say, But it's something that wasn't affecting gay men because, well, gay men, of course, were also experiencing massive discrimination and and prejudice, especially in the 80s and 90s around AIDS and because of AIDS. Um, Although, of course, straight people also got AIDS, also Mm -hmm. not from homosexual people. (laughs) It was just the stereotype was this is the gay, the gay disease, right? And gay cancer, as it was called at one point. Mm -hmm. And so the bisexual men were blamed for covering up the fact that they were actually gay. And I'm saying that sort of in quotation marks because that mm. was often the assumption, even there, there's by erasure effectively, right? Yeah. Cause it's, it's that you're lying to your wife, you're going to the gay bar, you're coming back with this gay cancer and you're giving it to your innocent heterosexual wife who has no idea about any of this. Mm. Um, and that that's the narrative. And so, and then that innocent young lady, uh, is carrying it on and maybe if, if it's not your wife maybe they then have sex with somebody else and then they're giving it to other innocent straight people mm-hmm. and it was very much this good versus evil narrative of the messengers or the, the the people who are delivering almost like carrying it with them and anyone could be a bisexual because anyway because they could be married to people right and they could be lurking mm-hmm. in your bedroom about to give you aids without mm-hmm. you knowing so that was the the sort of scaremongering that was happening around that. And what it led to partly was also weird messaging to, about AIDS to bisexual men. So one of the things that I was especially finding in my own research as well on the Anything That Moves Archive, which is that magazine in San Francisco that was... Active during that exact time, so between 1990 and 2001. And they were talking a lot. There were a lot of eulogies. There was a lot of mourning of people lost to AIDS who were bisexual, especially men. And there was also a lot of talk about how bi men are, were, and we know from research that's more contem- contemporary that it still are, way less likely to be plugged into queer communities. And so if your messaging around health is going to a gay bar, and putting up posters for example or doing messaging campaigns around aids and how to prevent the spread of aids there you're not going to get lots of the bi men because mm. that's not where they live they don't mm. go to the queer communities they don't they're not in the gay bars in the same way mm. and so you need to meet people where they're at and that's that was really missing and so a lot of what was happening is that the bi community was picking up the pieces and doing a lot of their own education especially by women were often doing the education to try and protect the bi men who were more vulnerable to the disease so There's a lot of community picking up of where the gaps in the system are left from things like bi erasure and a lack of understanding of how to properly access bisexual people.
2: Yeah, and there's a fascinating story about the bisexual porn experiment. Will you tell me about that?
3: (laughs) The proof that bi men exist, you mean? (laughs) Finally, we had some proof. Yeah, I start the book cuz it is there is a lot of research in the book and one of the things much like psychology in general when you start talking about issues like this people are like yeah but how do you even do research on this, right? You said that they should a right. pushback on the core concept that you can do research on sexuality. Much like people sometimes do that about, wow, well, how do you really know what people are thinking? You can't get into the mind. It's like, well, okay, but we've thought about that. <laughs> and so Twitter? in this as well. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Twitter, yes.
2: Just go on Twitter.
3: <laughs> That's actually where all psychology happens now on yeah. Twitter. But I basically wanted to push back against the idea that you need what I might call a pseudo-objective research methodology. So there's this idea that, well, if you give people questionnaires, you ask people about their sex lives, they're going to lie. So it's pointless, which isn't true because there are things that you can put in place to make it less likely that people are going to lie. And you can have controls for people lying or misleading, potentially intentionally misleading. But the other thing you want to avoid is going too far the other way. And going too far the other way is um, research, which includes what's called the penile plethysmograph, or, in my opinion, going too far the other way. Which <laughs> there was a study published a couple of years ago, very recently. I think the the stu- the actual study title was "Proof that by men exist," mm-hmm. which is. I mean, I want to shake my head at that already.
0: Mm-hmm. And
3: because we don't need that kind of proof. Like we knew that we didn't need that. And it sort of set up the whole like a fake debate as if academics weren't sure that bi men existed. It's like, no, no, we no, 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 no. That's not happening.
2: Um, but also, I don't want to interrupt the story. It just infuriates me that we need proof that they exist, that there's people standing there saying they're it. So that's your proof. Right. You, to, yeah. try, anyway, go on.
3: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So the concept of it, the concept of the look, the the hunt for it is problematic. Mm. The way in which they did it as well is problematic. It's also problematic from a human rights perspective, Mm. partly because that's not how we define identity. We don't define identity as something you need to sort of biologically prove or objectively prove. That's not how it works. Like you can just say things.
2: Have we ever done a test to prove straight people exist?
3: No, that's right.
2: Well, in that case, (laughs) I want a refund.
3: Yeah. So this study used what's called the penile plethysmograph, or PPG, which Mm -hmm. is, it's like a ring, an inflatable ring that you put around a penis to measure how hard a man is getting. Wow. Which actually came out of research on sex offenders, which is also... A can of worms. But Whoa. okay. Yeah, which even that applicant applying things that we applied to sex offenders to gay men. I mean, there's a there's too much history there to not find that a really big problem. Mm. But well, it's not just history, again, unfortunately, contemporary as well, the narratives mm. around. Um
2: So there's an inflatable ring that they would put yeah. around people's penises and it would do some measuring and some description.
3: It would measure how hard they are, which was supposed to measure how aroused the man was. And then they would show them um they, they would show these men who said they were bisexual. They would show them Porn, And they would show them porn involving straight looking or, you know, mixed sex dynamics, but also showing homosexual dynamics and showing different genders. And then if the men got aroused by different, especially the homosexual pornography, as well as the heterosexual looking pornography, then yes, ding, 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 ding. They were in fact As they said, they were bisexual. And that was the that was this this test, which was designed, which I think is horrific on multiple levels, partly because that's an incredibly artificial setting to have someone (laughs) randomly show you pornography (laughs) that you haven't picked in a lab with this thing strapped to your penis. Um, is ridiculous as a concept. Uh, never mind to then take the findings from that and say, oh, yes, yes, yes. They, they said they were going to be aroused by this, and they were in fact, and we could measure this by how hard they got, which is total, that's, no, there's lots of measures of arousal that have nothing to do with that. Never mind the fact that that is likely to be weaponized by oppressive regimes. If you say we have a gay detector or a by detector. What do you think is going to happen in the half of the world that lives in countries where homosexual acts are illegal? Mm-mm. They're going to use this kind of stuff and say, hey, we've got an objective tool that tells us. And so you're suspected of homosexual activity. we put this tool on you. You reacted. Now you're in prison, which is also, by the way, because of the error rate, it's going to put lots of heterosexual people in prison as well, because that's not how sexuality works. Yeah. So there's so much about this that blows my mind. But that's the what not to do. So there's that search for objectivity sometimes in sexuality research. And we need to be incredibly careful that we don't stray into really, really problematic methods.
2: But also, people watching sex of any kind is arousing. That doesn't make you bisexual. Otherwise, I would be bisexual. And I don't identify as bisexual. Like it's very, I've read many things. You're not just turned on by the tranche of sexuality that you live in isn't that right
3: certainly it's also um you saying that makes me smile partly because there is other research on female sexuality which Mm. is more rare when it comes to arousal because people care a lot more about the threat of a gay man potentially um, flirting with another man than they care Mm. about a woman flirting with another woman (laughs) um again just ingrained homophobia within (laughs) society. Should we have
2: have a little folder called dumpster fire of history for this conversation? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's another one for the dumpster fire of history. Um, Yes, go on.
3: Yeah, toss. (laughs) Um, And, but there was also, um, it was actually a presentation at a conference that was never published as as more formal than a conference paper, Mm -hmm. but the the title was something to the effect of (laughs) what is woman's sexuality and do they have one? And oh. it was because there's an equivalent of the penopathysmograph for women, which measures right. how wet women get. Right. And that was used in a number of research settings. And women reacted by getting wet to a lot of different kinds of porn, as you just said, partly yes. because we get hard or aroused by lots of different things. And the reaction to that by researchers who were mostly men um, was, oh, well, they're turned on by everything. <laughs> and so I guess they don't have a sexual preference I guess it's all just
2: well it's it's it, and, and, and no, how, it... how far do you subscribe to the challenge around the fact that you know there's always that story during the rounds that crash test dummies are designed for people who identify as male bodies and slim as well and actually they're not designed for people who identify as women or assigned female at birth people and therefore they're much more likely to Die in a crash because all the scientists are men. Do, mm-hmm. you, do you sort of buy into that?
3: Sure. I mean, there's systematic bias, especially mm. gender bias in the sciences, which you can see in the history of bisexual research and science as well, partly because that was a thing in general. So mm-hmm. there were many more men who were academics, many more men who were researchers uh, than, than, there were, than there were women. But it, it seems to be related with, but I'm not sure exactly how, was one shift that I observed. So one shift I observed is that, so um, Uh, Alfred Kinsey you've probably heard of he developed the Kinsey scale
2: do us just a quick pricey of what that is in case anyone doesn't know
3: of course Um, which is where you get to choose now mostly although at that point it was researchers choosing for you um, a number between zero and six your sexual preferences. And so it would be zero represented entirely or exclusively heterosexual fantasies and desires and behaviors, sexual behaviors. Um, And six wasn't exclusively homosexual. And then everything in the middle was what I would now consider on the bisexual spectrum, but was sort of a number that you could get assigned, depending on your, your own fantasies, your own behavior, your own relationships and sex. Mm-hmm. Now, the Kinsey scale um, changed how we think about sex because it talk- started talking about sexuality on a spectrum. But that was a man, Alfred Kinsey. There was also someone called Fritz Klein, who was doing research before Kinsey, who was one of the probably the first person in English to be talking n- neutrally and positively about bisexuality. Mm-hmm. And that was in the late 1900s. Um, And then going into the 20th century. And then there was Fritz Klein, who was in the 70s, 80s and 90s, also a man who was particularly important for research on bi men. But he was a therapist who did research on, again, like more sort of affirmative therapy for for queer people, but especially bisexual people. Man, man, man. Up until the 90s, the assumption was, well, the, the research found as well that there's twice as many people who are bisexual who who are men who identify as men than there are that there are women so the assumption was that there's twice as many bi men than there are bi women and now we say it exactly the other way around Uh so it could be that there were more people who identified as bi because they couldn't come out as gay for example Mm. or it could be other reasons but there's been a marked shift in the last 20 years where since i was a kid it was assumed that it well the women are the ones who are much more likely to be bisexual they're much more fluid they're much more flexible and so at some point that shift happened and i'm wondering if it happened when more women came into the field Mm -hmm. and we actually started researching female sexuality with new words new terms new ways of looking at it from a less male penis centric perspective
2: Paris Lees, who is a journalist and writer, amazing person, she's a trans woman, uh, and she wrote this thing on Twitter. It was someone who released an article about the gay gene saying, Oh, we know, we think we might be getting closer to it. And it's always stuck with me because um, this was years ago, but I was like, Oh, interesting. And then she wrote, How along these lines, I don't want to misquote her, but like, you know, how why Why are you doing this? We don't need to know. Like, it's ludicrous that you should be trying to locate, because what you're doing is aligning it with an illness by doing that. But I know that you speak in the book about the, the by gene as well.
3: I went on the hunt for one anyway, because mm. I also grew up with the idea that there is a gay gene, or that you're born gay, certainly, mm. which is what's called an essentialist argument, that you were, you know, born this way. Mm. And I just took it for granted. And some of the stuff that I'd seen had had said that and found that in twins, there's more likelihood of both of the twins being homosexual than in oh. other kinds of siblings. And I was like, okay, well, I guess that's just fact. And it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and the people who came up with the original study, which is widely quoted, and was certainly quoted really heavily in the 90s, which is sort of the, the proof of a gay gene they spent the next 20 years trying to be like, no, there isn't. That's not what we said. Uh (laughs) What about the nuance? And so that was really interesting to read. So to read these scientists, like picking up the pieces from journalists who overzealously reported on these genetic findings, because they're like, we found this gene, yeah, but that doesn't mean that it accounts for all sexual differences. Mm. And the main thing that I found going through the chapter on um, genetics and on essentialist versus non-essentialist arguments so what can you be born this way if so what does it mean and looking at animals the prevalence in animals mm. is that we need to destabilize the heterosexual assumption of that being the norm and mm. so certainly by the end of it i came to the i mean this is a very like bisexual thing to to find it's like by the end i found that actually bi is maybe the originary state and is somehow like <laughs> the the default position for for mammals. but but i think it maybe is because it's the most flexible sexual strategy to be not limited by the gender of the or the sex of the 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 partners that we're attracted to so but the biggest thing isn't saying let's look for this perversion let's look for this difference because as you said before with the like did they do this did they look for a straight test no they're also not looking for a straight gene no and so if you're not looking for that then you shouldn't be looking for a gay gene or
2: well exactly it's like that you know um by proving that there's a gay gene therefore i'm allowed to exist uh is only going to be like well let's go let's trim out the gene for a start and whatever it's called dna coding you'll know more and also it's playing into the hands of people who seem to set the agenda that people can't do whatever they want or be whatever they want because they're not harming anyone literally they're harming nobody so i'm out what do you feel
3: Well, it's assuming that there is a a single gene or a set of genes that are responsible for human sexuality, which I think is vastly underestimating how complex sexual attractions actually are. Mm. And it is very likely for this kind of stuff to be abused by um, people who are homophobic. And again, by oppressive regimes, for example,
2: you could screen for it.
3: Yeah. And we've seen it abused before. I mean, the reason that pink is the color we associate with queerness or gay people in particular is because of the pink triangle which was used by the nazis mm. specifically because they wanted to filter out the genetic material right that was the whole argument is that we're filtering out this inferior genetic material and so that's very eugenicsy and that's very back to the roots of queer phobia and so we need mm. to be very weary when we are wary when we um go down these paths
2: wary and then weary and yes, then make exactly. sure we're not weary so that we can continue <laughs> to be wary <laughs>
3: <laughs> and and you can see why in the 70s, this was popular, though, So the, the born this way stuff really had a resurgence in the, in the 70s when it was like equal rights, because if I'm born this way, then I didn't choose this. And if I didn't choose this, then it can be a protected characteristic. Mm-hmm. And we have frameworks for laws to protect protect characteristics like race, sex, gender, those kinds of things, mm-hmm. um, pregnancy. And so if we have a framework for that, we can add sexual orientation into that Mm
2: -hmm. so that's a positive thing
3: which is a positive thing which is what people were fighting for at the time now that we have that we we almost we don't need the argument anymore we don't need to make that argument of like i can't change this because also we should be able to change it yes (laughs) just like you can change your gender like you should be able to change it like it's not like you're this at birth and that's it forever
2: exactly everyone it needs to relax.
3: Relax and fight for human rights.
2: <laughs> relax and fight for human rights is a t-shirt. I love it. <laughs> um, on all this odyssey of research for the book, I just wanted to know if you had encountered any other funny stories or any brilliant stories from, from researching the book.
3: Oh, many, many. Like the gay giraffe row where politicians are tweeting about, you know, the sex of giraffes and... <laughs> Some funny stories around animals. There's definitely some really positive stuff as well when it comes to, um, I mean, sexual experimentation and relationship structures, which I included as the last chapter because it's the first thing that people think of. Mm -hmm. So people, the first thing that bisexual people often get asked is, A, can you be monogamous? Mm. B, um, who do you find attractive and how does it work? And C, do you want to have a threesome? (laughs) Those are the three things that you get asked. Within thirty seconds, if you're at a dinner party, people are a little bit drunk, and they want and and, you, and has it,
2: that happened to you?
3: Oh, many times. And so <laughs> the and sometimes it's a hypothetical: Would you want to have a threesome? And sometimes mm. it's a: Me and my girlfriend would like to have a threesome. Um, wow. With and like, what do you think? And that can, it can be quite aggressive, and it's one of the reasons I think and statistics bear out that the sexual assault of bisexual women is far higher than of uh, homosexual and, and straight
2: women. Yeah, it's, a, it's bi women were 7.3 times more likely to be repeatedly assaulted than heterosexual women. Is that right?
3: Yeah, so the, the stats are astonishing. And I think it's that, well, it presumably comes from that assumption of hypersexuality and constant sexual availability. And so mm. it's back to that anything that moves idea is that, well, she's bi, not. so she'll, she likes everybody. And that's just not how it works. Yeah. But back to the positives. Mm. Um, But within that, I I thought it was really fun to explore, you know, how do we talk about threesomes? How do we talk about different relationship structures? And what does that have to do with bisexuality? Because Mm. you need to work through the whole book together. (laughs) You don't get Uh. at the beginning. You don't get your stereotypes met at the beginning. At the end, you get to have a a real conversation about these things. You need to work for the threesomes. You don't just get to start with them.
2: Well, so I've heard.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But I also really like people always, when asked, what do you like most about being bi? Most people say freedom. And I think that's really nice as well.
2: That's wonderful. And it sort of relates to something a listener wrote in that I wondered if, um, you know, I I feel I need to talk to a bisexual person about this. So let me read it. I'm going to make this anonymous because I don't know that they've asked to be anonymous. They haven't asked to be anonymous, but I'm going to make it anonymous. Um, so it's a, it's a man. Hello, I'm a mid-40s man with two young kids and a wife, and I came out to my wife as bisexual about 6 years ago now, just after our second child was born. Not the best time, but it came out. I struggle day to day and so does my wife. I've been listening to your podcast with Will. I find them fabulous to listen to. Just really wanted to say hi and thanks and how do you, and how do you cope as you're married with kids? How do your thoughts on men come into it um and I suppose one of the themes that's coming up in that email is that this is a person who is telling their wife so they're they're, they're a bisexual person in what could be appear to the outside a heterosexual relationship and the complexities that come with that um and I wonder if you've got any advice for someone who You know, because he's only come out within the relationship. I don't know if he's had experiences prior to marrying his wife, but I wonder if you've got any sort of salient advice for that.
3: Well, first of all, uh, amazing for coming out. Um, Yeah, congrats, because that's. It's also really uncommon so we know from research that men are half as likely to come out to their loved ones as women i think society would benefit from more visibility of by men and if you feel like your loved ones are the first place to do that or your friends then that's amazing so i think we need more visibility with within that and we know that that is a psychological buffer for negative consequences so being out is a good thing most of the time because you're more likely to be able to fully and authentically be yourself yeah. but um in terms of family dynamics the research I find most interesting around families, there's quite a lot of research on bisexual people within families. There's research on bisexual moms. There's research on bisexual um, women who are pregnant and different sort of standards of care that they may be getting and how they also feel like they're constantly being erased. And there's the constant assumption that they're heterosexual, mm-hmm. same with um, young moms. And how do they stay visible when people say you and your husband, or you, you're in your heterosexual relationship, do you then say, but I'm, I'm still bi yeah. or I'm bi and then countered, you know contradict them but then you have to have that conversation potentially with the person who's who you've now outed yourself to as a man or a woman or as any gender Hmm. so in terms of um advice one thing that the research also finds is that bisexual parents often find that talking about their own sexuality openly as early as possible with their kids is a really good educational tool that helps to um encourage some empathy and understanding for people who are queer, but also for people of other marginalized communities. So research on by parents who've come out, all of them say, do it. It was great. There's no right time. Ideally do it as early as possible. So it doesn't become a thing So you can build it up. as like, I need to wait for the right time. I need to wait for the right time. You don't need to do that. Mm-hmm. Ideally come out earlier rather than later. Um, is, is at least the advice that they're sharing. Mm-hmm. So I think in terms of coming out beyond, um, the partner, if you can come out to your kids, I think that would also be amazing.
2: Th- that's amazing advice, by the way. Um, also, I think when you say at the end of your email, how do your thoughts on men come into it? I think what I'm gleaning from your, love that word, from your question is, I've come out to my wife and now I want to have sex with Ben. And oh. I'm
3: married. Oh, <laughs> didn't even and pick
2: up on that. This <laughs> is, book well, because he's, he's sort of asking me like how I cope with it. And I think uh forgive me if I'm getting it wrong, but I think it's a, an age old question. And this man is specifically bisexual. So perhaps there's never been a time when they have explored that side of their personality, personality sexuality. But I, I do think that it is important to say that that is both a distinctly bisexual question, but it's also a, anyone on planet Earth question, you know, okay. which is you've got to talk about it with your other half or, you know, the other two in the thruple, whichever relationship you're in and say, this is what I'm feeling. Because you've really got to try and move secrecy out of relationships and be with someone to whom you can say, I'm feeling this and I need you to know because I'm going to tell you first. Because otherwise you can just go and have sex with people behind people's back, that's fine. But I I think you do need to try and raise it with the person you're in the relationship with. And I I always love that um, Alan Cumming bisexual who I used to host this podcast with one of the things he used to say about relationship stuff to people when they wrote in is are you having your needs met and I love that are you having your needs met and if you're not that is something to talk about with the person you're in the relationship with and how are you as a couple or thruple or quadruple whatever what do you call it quobble? <laughs> quobble. how are we going to address this because something has changed and you're not going to be in any kind of marriage without big shifts and change
3: yeah and if you want to learn about all the different ways in which you can do that, chapter seven of my book gives you lots of insights into different kinds of relationship structures, if you want.
2: <laughs> so the answer is buy Julia's book.
3: <laughs> but also, um, Look at luck. chapter seven. <laughs> <laughs> good luck.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, bring it up. And you, it sounds like your wife has been understanding so far. And there is no shame in this stuff. Because better out than in, listener, thank you so much for writing in. I hope we've been of use. And if you write and tell me that I was completely wrong about understanding your question, also fine. Um, Julia, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. What is next for you? (laughs)
3: <laughs> That's a good question. So <laughs> I have a regular podcast called Bad People on BBC Sounds.
2: With Sophie Hagen.
3: With Sophie Hagen, who is also queer. Yeah. And we also had four episodes on bisexuality called Bi People, which came out during Pride Month. So if you want to yeah. go back and listen to our back catalogue, there's four episodes just on that. But we have lots of queer things that seep into our conversations because, you know, two, two bi people host a podcast. What happens? Sometimes <laughs> it comes up.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Once in a Whether while. Whether people
3: want it to or not. <laughs> so yeah so have a listen to that and um i've got a couple of books out uh one on bisexuality as we've already said but Mm -hmm. also a couple of others on criminal psychology i actually came out of my second book i was by um when i was talking about othering and how people demonize and villainize by uh, queer people and uh how visibility matters and so i came out as bi there so
2: interesting you want to
3: see like the very first time i came out as bi that's where at least publicly oh
2: that's wonderful (laughs) later this week we will be speaking to baby of drag race fame the one who left dun, dun, dun. uk drag race fame i mean so that's coming up and in the meantime at homo sapiens on instagram and hello at homo sapienspodcast.com if you want to write emails i highly advise it we read them out we read them all by the way we read them all so if you ever write in please don't think we ignore you we never do We always read them. So please write in. All right. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much.
3: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands.